Lord God, we come to you, and Lord, we, again, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you that you are with us through everything we face. God, we thank you that you're our provider. God, you are creator. You are the alpha, the omega. Lord, you are our God, and Lord, we commit um, all we have to you. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come to worship together as your church this morning. And God, as a part of our worship, as we sing, as we study your word, as we give, um, as we interact with each other, I pray, Lord, that you would receive all of it as the act of worship that it is. And Lord, I pray your blessing over the offering and things we collect this morning. Lord, continue to just touch, touch the giver, Lord, and guide them in their lives. Lord, I pray that you continue to guide the use of those funds, Lord, as they are used to expand your kingdom in this community. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, this morning as we open it, as we start at the very beginning, the very first verse, Lord, we see your power and your presence in even those very first words. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, as we read and as we study this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you need to show us today. God, we thank you that your spirit is alive in the pages of Scripture. And Lord, as we open it, we open it with expectant eyes and hearts, Lord, to hear from you this morning. Lord, guide us now as we open it and as we study and as we learn and worship through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We said we are starting this new series this morning in the beginning. We're going to be covering Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're not really going, I mean, they're kind of in different story chunks, not necessarily in the chapters, but today we're going to cover chapters 1 and 2. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it with me if you're uh, here with us in person, you don't have your own Bible, uh, you can use the ones that are provided for you in the seats. If you're with us online, you can grab your Bible as well. And um, this is a pretty easy verse to find, right? You just get past the table of contents, right, and, and move open uh, to Genesis chapter 1, to the very start um, of the Bible. And that's exactly where I want to start today, is in the very first verse. And the very first verse is a powerful one. It is a big statement. The Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And again, this is a simple sentence. In fact, if you, um, if you are memorizing Scripture, this is a good Scripture to memorize. It's pretty easy to memorize, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet, this is a very powerful statement. There is a lot in this sentence. Hey, we see again just, I mean, in the beginning, there's God, how he's a creator, the heavens, the earth, the, how God is the uncreated Alpha Omega, right? The one with all of the power, with all of the majesty and glory, uh, all of those kinds of things. There is a lot in this simple sentence. And yet when I think about this and, and look at this powerful statement, because it's not only what's in it, but it's also what it means for us. Hey, because we, all of us, it's just a part of the way that we are as humans. We all have this inherent need to know where we came from. And, and in fact, if you've around, even come today, knowing that we we're starting this, you're probably thinking like, oh yeah, creation, right? Because there's, there's all kinds of theories out there, isn't there? <laughs> all kinds of ideas, right, about where we came from. Some of them are pretty far-fetched, right? Some of them you know, are very simple. I mean, there's, there's a, we, know, we all know this inherent need to know where we came from. And we have this, this question at the, the core of just us as humans. 
You know, this, this again came even more apparent to us as we, uh, many of you know, we adopted our daughter. She's five, so it was, you know, five, we started that journey seven years, because we it's a couple years before we got her, and, and even through that process, and even during our home study and all of the stuff that has to be done, you know, in, in preparation for adoption, literally one of the questions that came out in our home study was, um, to us, was how will you help her, you know, know where she came from? Right? When she understands what being adopted means, and, and again, she, because they know, right, and they've seen that through, st- and through as those kids grow up, and even whether it's through foster system or through adoption or those things, is they have this inherent need to know where they came from. Okay? And, and again, we, at least I was a little taken back by that question, right? I was like, oh, well, and I guess we need to have that, you know, we need to think about that. We need to have, you know, she needs to have those connections to her biological family and, and those kinds of things, right? And again, we've talked and we worked through that. But, but again, it was just, it was an eye-opening experience to realize we all have this inherent need or question, right? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Was I created for a purpose, right? Or am I just taking up space? And we look at this powerful statement in Genesis 1.1, and it answers a lot of these questions, doesn't it? And as we think about that, we realize, yes, I was created by a powerful, loving God. I was, I was made for a purpose. Right? I'm not a waste of space and time. Right? That we were created by a loving God with a purpose. There's a reason why we are here. And, and as we, we look at all this and, and even look at, at the, again, the, the, what's presented in Genesis 1, all of the, the competing theories and different, different stuff out there in the world about where we came from and, and why and all those things, I, just, I think we need to start with, with the realization that, that, uh, that comes with this statement. To claim that God created the world and all that exists is a matter of faith. Hey, to... Again, to claim that God created the world and all that exists is a matter of faith. I mean, that's exactly what's claimed here in Genesis 1-1, isn't it? That God created the heavens and the earth. And yet to claim that, as the scriptures claim it, though, it is still a matter of faith. In fact, that's what all scripture is, right? Is, is it centered around the idea of faith, about not just who God is, but who we are, and, and how we are connected to God, and, and our relationship with him, and all those things. And yet, so many times when we get into these creation discussions, right, we bring in all kinds of preconceived ideas, or requirements, or, or notions, and, and kind of all this stuff. And, and, and again, there's, there's science to be discussed, there's, there's history to be discussed, there's, again, theories, and aliens, and, you know, evolution, all this stuff, right? It's all out there. And yet, when we come to the scriptures to hear, you know, again, the, 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 the version out of, uh, from God and from his scriptures about where we came from and how God created the world, it always comes down to a matter of faith. Now, again, this as we look at that, we also need to know that as we come into Genesis, as we open it up, we realize Genesis is not written as a science book. Okay, Genesis was not written as a historical record. Okay, Genesis was written from the perspective of faith. 
And the reality is, is if you go back to any of these, if you go down any of those roads to find out where you came from, is it, you always end up at a place of faith. Okay, even if you go down the science road, okay, and you do that, I'll tell you, I started college as, as a biology major, pre-med. I've taken some very high-level, college-level science classes. And to say that, though, if you really work this, the scientific method and, and let, let that go, it always leads you back to intelligent design. Okay, what, what, is, what is claimed in Genesis does not contradict the scientific method. It doesn't. In fact, you go down the historical road, right? And you go down that, set science aside, and to go, okay, let's just go history, right? And let's go back as far as we can go, and, and archaeological evidence, and, and, and all these things, right? We can ancestry.com this all the way back. Okay, even if you look at all the history, again, it, it, it fits in what's presented in Genesis, but Genesis was not written as a historical record. Okay, the scriptures were written as a matter of faith to tell us who God is and where we fall in that. And it all comes down, and we just talked about faith in Hebrews, didn't we? Right? It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Right? In fact, even if you go down the science road, if you look at the, the, the top uh, you know, experts in evolutionary theory, they get back so to a place where they have to put in just as much faith into their, their theory as what's required to look at intelligent design. And because we all have this inherent question, where did I come from? And why am I here? And the scriptures answer that question for us in a way that all these other things can't. But to claim that God created the world and all that exists is a matter of faith and it is something we have to keep in the forefront of our minds. They, they, again, science and history certainly fit into what is presented in Genesis, but we, we cannot try to make the Bible do what it was never supposed to do. It was not written as a science book. It was not written as a historical record. It's written as a chronicles of faith of who God is and who we are. We see going back into Hebrews, right, as we see this, the, the the biblical definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and then just a few verses after that, in Hebrews 11.3, it tells us, maybe, there we go. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, but that we know what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Right? As we look at creation, as we look at our salvation, as we look at uh, all the aspects of who God is and who we are and how we interact with our God and our Creator, it always comes back to a matter of faith. Right? Of seeing the evidence around us right, that supports what we cannot see. And again, as we talked about faith in the last series, as we looked through Hebrews, we know that that faith can absolutely be misplaced. Right? We can put our faith in all kinds of things that are not... Um, worthy of that faith, right? God is. And as we look at that, we realize, um, you know, that every creation theory ultimately is an act of faith. In fact, even if you look at those that deny the existence of God completely, it takes more faith to believe in those theories than it does to believe in the God described in Genesis. And now as we, as we look at this incredibly powerful statement in Genesis 1.1, 
right, and all that it encompasses. Then we move into this next section of Scripture. It's one that is likely familiar. We've heard it in different versions. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 1, 2 through 2, 4. So if you have your Bible, again, we're going to read this really quickly. Follow along with me as we pick up Genesis 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be space between the waters and separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. And God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the water seas and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, the trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let, light, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. and God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. And then God said, let the water swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. And then God said, that the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals, and that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, and so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the sky 
or it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the count of creation of the heavens and the earth. Now, as you read these verses, there might be some things that are familiar, maybe some things that are surprising. Okay, as we look at all of this, again, on your outline, I just outlined for you all of the seven days of creation and everything that God made on that day okay, and what he did. Now, the, uh, there's so many things we could look into uh, as we look at this text. Okay, and again, lots of avenues. And I, I literally went through this week. I'm like, well, I could go that way. I could go this way. What should I do with all of this? Right? There's a lot here. And I said, that's why I'm just summarizing it for you. Because, well, we also have to get through chapter 2. Okay, but as we look at this, we see these seven days. The verses where we see what he made each day. There, but yet, yeah, I want to point out that there is a work-rest rhythm built into creation. If we follow this design, even in our lives today, how we were created for a work-rest rhythm, it brings health to us. If we neglect it, it brings struggle. As we see this, in fact, all throughout Scripture, it starts at creation, and yet we know that if we do things God's way, we find success, right? And, and, and it's fulfilling. If we do it outside of God's way, it brings struggle. By us submitting to this created order, it reminds us that God is the ultimate creator, and it is by his power that we live, not our own. In fact, that's what the seventh day of rest was all about, right? It was acknowledging the power that had been done and who did it. As we look at the seven days of creation, Hey, just we step back and look at all of this, is the seven days of creation show a divine acts of separation to bring ultimate unity. And let me say that again. This is a big statement. And the seven days of creation show divine acts of separation to bring ultimate unity. Okay, look back over the days. At the center of God's work, is him separating stuff. He separates light from dark. He separates the water from the land. He separates the animals into different species. He, he separates the plants into different kinds. And he separates humans into two genders. He said, does a lot of separating all throughout creation. And yet as he does that, at the end of it, he sees all of the different things that he created, all the separating that he made, uh, but yet how they all fit together. They are all different, but yet they're all good. In fact, that's where we see, you know, as it culminates in Genesis 1.31, right? When God says, he looked over all that he had made, all that he had separated, all the species, all the different kinds, all those things, and he saw that it was very good. As we look at all of this, right, as all of this diversity, all of this separation, all these things, ultimately to bring unity, to bring it all back together under his care. Because how it all works together, it's different, but all good. And yet it all comes back together in unity under God's authority. As we, as we see all of this, right, right after this verse, after Genesis 1.31, where he declares it all to be very good and how it all fits back together in unity, right after this verse is the seventh day. And that brings, again, everything together in unity under God's authority. 
as God created things through divine acts of separation, he does it ultimately to bring back unity. And we see you start with this, this huge broad statement in Genesis 1.1, and then we zoom in a little closer on the details uh, of, of creation right through the different days, and then we move into the next section, Genesis 2.5 through 25, okay, where um, we see this creation account zoom in one more time, and this time it zooms into ultimately day six. Okay, so we're going to read this text. Okay, Genesis 2, we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 5, where it says, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, followed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see uh, what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord took out of the, man, uh, the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man explained, exclaimed, The one is born of my bone bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And as you read, again, this zoomed-in account in Genesis 2, okay, um, uh, of mainly of day 6, right, of the creation of animals and creation of humans. Uh, and yet we see as the zoomed-in account in Genesis 2, this same theme running through this, the idea of divine separation created to bring ultimate unity. Okay, the first thing I want to point out, there's, there's three incredibly powerful verses in this, in this chapter, okay, in this version. Okay, the first one okay, shows us that there is a separation between two trees. It shows a separation between two trees. 
Okay, we see this in verses 9 and 10, okay, where it says, God made all sorts of trees to grow up in the ground, trees that were beautiful, produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. Okay, this verse is very key. Okay, verse 9, the two trees. Now, again, we all know how the story goes, don't we? Okay, we, we all read, we just read the command that God gave to, the, to, to Adam about the, the, the two trees. Okay, the, the two trees, it's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, now, again, next week, we're going into chapter three as it zooms in once again, okay, and as the story continues, and we're going to look at, again, the fall next week in chapter three. Okay, but again, we're not going to get there yet, okay, but we see these two trees. Okay, now, again, one tree represents life. Right, it's the tree of life. And it isn't just, you know, breathing like a lot. This is eternal life. Right? And, and as we think about that, right, this tree in a lot of ways represents an eternal connection with God. That's what we were created for, by the way. Is this eternal connection relationship with God. We see the tree of life. And this life, again, that's exactly what it represents. It represents life and a connection to God. Okay, now the other tree represents death. Again, that's exactly what God said, isn't it? He said, if you eat of that one, you will surely die. It will bring death. One tree represents life, one tree represents death. And again, how, what is death? It is a broken relationship with God caused by disobedience to God's created order. Right, what do we learn in chapter one? There's a created order, right, that God made us for, that we are supposed to live within. Okay, and, and again, this eating of this tree represents us disobeying God's orders right, and choosing ourselves over that connection with God. One tree represents life, an eternal connection with God. The other tree represents death, a broken relationship with God caused by disobedience as we go against God's created order. Okay, now again, these two trees are very significant, and like I said, this, they're, right, this, they're, they're separated. Okay, but again, they, through creation, we see this divine separation with, to bring ultimate unity. Okay, we're going to fast forward from the very first, right? We're in the, to the very end, right? At the very end of Scripture, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. This is a description of heaven. Okay, Revelation 22 what is it? What do we see here? It says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of Main Street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used to me for medicine to heal the nations. What do we see now in heaven? There are still two trees. Are there not? There are. But there's a big difference in these two trees and the ones in Genesis, aren't there? Right? The, in Genesis, we have two trees that are divinely separated between one represents life, one represents death. Hey, now in Revelation, right, we see there are still two trees, but they are both trees of life. What's the difference? What happens between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22? What happens there? 
Right? Yes, you know the answer, don't you? And that, that is the right answer. The one you're thinking is the right answer. Jesus. Right? Jesus is what happened. And we see that. Right? In fact, what does it say in the verse? It says there's the throne of God, right? That represents the first tree of life, the throne of God. The second tree of life, what's the other part of the throne? Of the Lamb. Right? It's by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that the tree of death gets turned into a tree of life. This would be a great place for an amen, by the way. Right? The two trees is incredibly significant. We still see two trees. We still see a river, don't we? Right? And everything between Genesis 2, or really Genesis 3, right, to Revelation 22 is about getting us back to that place. It is incredibly significant. And as we, as we look at that, right, this explains, right, um, again, in verse... Um, as we see this, why there's still two trees, right? Because the eventual unity is brought through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Divine separation brought for eternal unity. It, the next separation that we see in Genesis chapter 2 is we see that there is a separation between two genders. Hey, there's a generation between two genders. Hey, we see this divine separation hey, in Genesis 22, 2, verses 22 and 23, where it says, At last, the man exclaimed, The one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Again, these verses are incredibly foundational for God's created order. They notice it starts out, it says, this explains is how verse 24 starts. As, as this, again, NLT version says this explains, I'll tell you, is in, in older translations, like in, in King James, it's a therefore. Okay, now, we talked about this in Hebrews. Anytime you see that word, okay, it's, it's, it's taking what was given early, in the earlier verses, and it's building on top of it a new point. Okay, again, what's in verse 23? Okay, um, again, it, 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 so it connects this sameness, right? Again, Adam and Eve, both genders, they're both humans. Okay, and, and what's Adam's reaction? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? We, we read this in the text we read earlier where it says that God took Adam's rib, right? In fact, if you go back to the Hebrew, what the, the Hebrew really means, it, it actually doesn't say rib. It says that God separates Adam. Hey, what the Hebrew implies is that he, he cut Adam in half. Hey, now, we've all heard this, isn't it, right? Our spouses are better half, right? We've all heard this before, haven't we? My better half's right there. Right. Amen. I agree. <laughs> right, I, right, and again, he divinely separated Adam, right, to create two genders, Hey, I, I, we, we see how this, and yet, right, what happens? Once they were split apart through creation, they once again find unity. How do they find unity? In marriage. Right? In, and again, this verse, these verses are so incredibly foundational because these are the foundation for biblical marriage. 
And as we look at that, we see, again, how they find unity again through the divine marriage of the man and his wife. We see Jesus reiterates the importance of this in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, where he says, haven't you read the scriptures? Well, yes, Jesus, we have. He says, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That's really interesting here in Matthew, because Jesus, he quotes Genesis 2, 24, right? Which we see that, right? They, they are united together in, as one flesh. But the interesting thing is he actually does not quote 2, 23. He, Jesus here quotes 1, 27, okay, which we read in chapter 1. That, why? Right? Because verse 23 establishes the same thing. Right? That, again, that they were separated into two genders. But Genesis 127 more strongly describes male and female. Okay? And Jesus purposely um, quotes Genesis 127 and verse 224 because it gives an even more declaration of the male and female difference. Again, divine separation that comes back in divine unity. And so again, how is unity found? Unity here is illustrated through biblical marriage. Now again, this is so incredibly foundational. And again, if you haven't put all the dots together, okay, every conversation about gender, about sexuality, about everything that's swirling in our culture right now comes back to this foundation. And, and, and so we see this, right, is found through biblical marriage. So in that, I, I gave for you in your outline, okay, the traditional Christian definition of biblical marriage. Okay, and this is given by, again, a scholar that I deeply respect. His name is Preston Sprinkle. This comes out of his book, um, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? Okay, this is the traditional Christian definition of biblical marriage. Marriage is a lifelong, one-flesh covenant union between two sexually different persons, a male and a female, from different families united with the purpose of telling God's story of faithfulness and creativity, and sexual relationships outside this covenant union are sin. And now I understand how countercultural this definition is. But I also understand where it comes from. To be clear, I am not saying that you have to be married to follow God. I'm not saying you have to be married in order to find unity right, in this way. Okay, marriage is used all throughout Scripture as an illustration of the intimacy that God desires with every human. It, it, it is an illustration. It is not a requirement. That you do not have to be married to know God. Okay, as we see this, okay, we, we understand right, that, that there's divine separation, making two genders, and they find unity. Through, is illustrated through biblical marriage. Okay, but yet you can find that same level of intimacy between you and God. In fact, that's what it's supposed to be. Okay, an earthly marriage is, is a representation of that, of that intimate relationship you're supposed to have with God. Right, in fact, again, there was, there, Jesus was quizzed on this over and over and over again, right, about marriage and about how it works in heaven. In fact, Jesus says, it's like, guys, you're not married in heaven. Like, you find that unity with God. Like, that's what's in for eternity. 
And again, Jesus is very clear about this teaching. Right? Marriage is, is an earthly institution that illustrates a much bigger spiritual concept. Okay, so again, I want to be clear. If you're single, you can be single and still be connected to God. Okay, you don't have to marry. That's a, probably a whole other conversation. As you can probably already tell, okay, as I wrestle with all this this week, because all of these things could be like a whole sermon series in itself. But as we do that, there's one more divine separation that I want to point out that we find in Genesis 2, and that is the separation between God and humans. God and humans. We see this in Genesis 2.25. Now again, this one is setting us up for next week. Okay, because in Genesis 2.25, what do we see? We see, again, an incredibly powerful statement. Okay, in verse 25, where it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Okay, now, again, you're saying, well, how does this show separation? Right, this shows God's design and connection and intimacy that he wants for all of us. Right, the fact that everything can be laid out, that we're, nothing's hidden, no lies, no smoke and mirrors, nothing, everything's laid out, and I, and I find a peace in that. I felt no shame. I have nothing to hide. God knows everything, right? My spouse knows everything. I mean, there's, there's nothing that is not out there, and yet I'm not shameful. Doesn't that sound awesome? Like, that's exactly what, what God wants for us. Okay, in fact, when we look at this verse, right, the, the man's wife, they were both naked. They were there together and with God in the garden, and they felt no shame. Okay, and, and, and again, this illustrates for us the reconciliation that God wants for your soul. Because reconciliation with God is what your soul longs for, right? It is not marriage. It's not sexual fulfillment. It's not all these, these, you know, power and wealth and all the things that the world tells you will fulfill your soul. It doesn't work, right? This is the only thing that works because this is what you were created for. Reconciliation with God is what your soul is striving for. And we, we've looked at all kinds of things in this world to try and fill that void. But the only, the only way we can get to that place of complete peace, of feeling everything laid out there, and we feel no shame, is to be connected with God. With that eternal relationship with Him. Like this is what we see in Philippians 4.7. This is describing this. This it says, if you do this, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I mean, these two verses are divinely connected. To have everything out there, to be naked in front of others and of God and have no shame, right? To, to experience a peace that you can't even explain. And the only way to do that is, again, through Jesus Christ. You can't work your way there. You can't earn it. You have to receive Christ as your Savior. You have to join the journey of faith. Right? Because we all feel shame, don't we? We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all done things right that, that hinder this connection with God. 
And that's what Jesus died for. Is to redeem it and to reconcile your soul back to your creator. Again, if you're here today and you have never received Christ as your savior, I will tell you, you can run after all kinds of things in this world, but they will all end up right back as empty and you'll be more empty than you were before. The only way you will find this peace is by receiving Christ as your savior, submitting your heart to him, Right, so give me your will and, and start a new journey of life of living according to God's created order. Okay, and that's the journey of faith that we then live in every day as we learn and as we grow and as we, we are transformed by God's Spirit. Even if you have received Christ today and yet you don't feel this peace, then you need to ask God what's destroying your peace and let the Spirit of God Take over that, that area, that attitude, that perspective, that broken relationship, whatever that is, right? And say, God, I, don't, I need to find this peace that I can't even explain because I don't have it right now. And God, I want you to bring it in my heart, in my life. Again, I don't know where you're at in your reconciliation, but your soul is longing for a connection to God. Answer that call, right? And you answer it with the name of Jesus Christ and receive him in your life, and then you walk your, your life and live within God's created order every day as God transforms you by his spirit, as you move closer and move forward in your faith journey every day. Okay, here's my final thought for you today. The heart of God is to bring unity where there is division. Okay, God's creative power will bring redemption wherever it is needed. So what do you need to surrender to God today? What is destroying your peace? What is destroying your connection to God? Right? What, what in your life is outside of God's created order? Right? Whatever it is, I encourage you to lay it at the foot of the cross today okay, and find that peace. Because, Lord God, we see the fingerprints of you in creation. God, we see your divinely created order for life, for faith, for a purpose in life. And God, we praise you today that you created us to be in a divine, loving relationship with you. God, you created our souls, Lord, to find a peace in you that, that we can't even explain. And Lord, I pray that as we go this week, Lord, that we would continually submit to your spirit. Lord, that we would, Lord, surrender our hearts and our lives to the journey of faith every single day. God, that the name of Jesus would reign in our hearts and our minds. God, that your spirit would fill us with your power. God, as we live out our faith and are transformed by you every day. And God, whatever it is in our lives, in our connection with you, our relationships, our, our surrounding people around us and our culture, God, whatever it is that's breaking that connection with you, I pray, Lord, that you will just cover it with the blood of Jesus. And God, help us as your church, Lord, to help others find you Lord, to find that peace that they so desperately need. Lord, we thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you for creating us in your divine word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, covering our sin and our death so that we can be eternally connected to you. God, we love you. We praise you. Guide us this week as we go, as we shine your light in this dark world, as we show the world what real love is. 
Lord, as you bring reconciliation where there's division. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Guide us as we go this week. In Jesus' name.